Chapter 24 of the Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 24. Consuelo felt, above all, a desire a necessity for liberty, very natural after so many days of slavery. She experienced, therefore, an extreme pleasure in rushing forth into a vast space, which the labors of art and the ingenious arrangements of clumps of trees and alleys made appear still more vast. But after walking two hours, she felt saddened by the solitude and silence which prevailed in that beautiful place. She had already made the round several times without finding the trace of a single footstep upon the fine and freshly raked sand. Lofty walls, masked by a thick vegetation, prevented her from wandering at random in unknown paths. She already knew by heart all those which crossed each other under her feet. In some places, the wall was interrupted by broad moats filled with water and the view could extend over beautiful lawns rising in slopes and bounded by woods, or over the entrances to charming and mysterious alleys, which were lost to sight as they wound among the coppice. From her window, Consuelo had seen all nature at her disposal. On level ground, she found herself in an enclosed plot, bounded on every side, all the interior beauties of which could not remove the feeling of captivity. She sought for the enchanted palace in which she had recovered consciousness. It was quite a small building, in the Italian style, luxuriously decorated within, elegantly built without, and backed by a steep rock of picturesque effect, but which formed a better natural enclosure for the whole bottom of the garden, and an obstacle more impenetrable to the sight than the highest walls and the thickest glacis of Spandau. My fortress is beautiful, said Consuelo to herself, but it's only the more confined that I see clearly. She went to rest upon the terrace of the building, which was ornamented with vases of flowers and surmounted by a little fountain. It was a charming spot, and though the view embraced only a garden, some glimpses of a broad park and of lofty mountains, the blue summits of which overtopped the trees. It was delightfully fresh and pleasing. But Consuelo, instinctively terrified by the care taken to install her, perhaps for a long time in a new prison, would have given all the flowering catalpas and all the enameled borders for the corner of a broad field, with a little thatched cottage, uneven roads, and the free sight of a country which it was possible to explore and to become acquainted with. From the spot where she was, she could discover no intermediate grounds between the high verdant walls of her enclosure and the vague indented horizon already lost in the fogs of evening. The nightingale sank delightfully, but no sound of human voice announced the vicinity of a dwelling. Consuelo saw that her own, situated on the borders of a great park and of a perhaps immense forest, was only a dependency upon some more extensive manor. 
What she could perceive of the park only made her desirous to see more of it. She could distinguish in it no other moving beings than some herds of deer and goats, browsing upon the sides of the hills with as much confidence as if the approach of a mortal were an unknown event for them. At last the evening breeze blew aside a screen of poplars which closed one of the sides of the garden, and Consuelo perceived by the last light of day the white towers and pointed roofs of a very large chateau, half hidden behind a woody rise, at the distance of about a quarter of a league. In spite of all her desire to think no longer of the chevalier, Consuelo persuaded herself that he must be there, and her eyes were fixed earnestly on that chateau, perhaps imaginary, the approach to which seemed forbidden her and which the shades of twilight slowly caused to disappear in the distance. When it was completely night, Consuelo saw the reflection of lights in the lowest story of her pavilion dance upon the neighboring shrubs, and she hastily descended, hoping at last to see a human face in her abode. She had not this pleasure. The face of the domestic who was busy lighting the candles and serving supper was, like that of the doctor, covered with a black mask, which seemed the uniform of the invisibles. It was an old servant, with a wig as smooth and as stiff as brass wire, neatly dressed in a complete suit of tomato color. I humbly ask Madam's pardon, said he in a cracked voice, for presenting myself before her with such a face. Such are my orders, and it is not my province to question the necessity of them. I hope that Madam will have the goodness to accustom herself to it, and that she will deign not to be afraid of me. I am at Madam's command. My name is Matthias. I am at the same time keeper of this pavilion, director of the garden, maitre hotel, and valet de chambre. I have been informed that Madam, having traveled a great deal, has the habit of serving herself in a measure. That, for example, she would not perhaps require the attendance of a woman. It would be difficult for me to obtain one for Madam, inasmuch as I have no wife, and the entrance to this pavilion is forbidden to all the women of the chateau. Still a female servant will come here every morning to assist me in household matters, and a gardener's boy will also come from time to time to water the flowers and take care of the walks. I have a very humble remark to make to Madam on this point. It is that every domestic other than myself to whom Madam should be even suspected of having addressed a word or made a sign would be dismissed on the instant, which would be very unfortunate for them, but the service is good and obedience well rewarded. Madam is too generous and too just, without doubt, to wish to expose those poor people "'You may be easy on that score, Mr. Matthias,' replied Consuelo. "'I am not rich enough to indemnify them, "'and it is not in my character to turn anyone from his duty.' "'Besides, I shall never lose them from my sight,' resumed Matthias, "'as if speaking to himself. "'You may spare yourself all precaution in that respect. "'I am under too great obligations to the persons who have brought me here, "'and also, as I think, to those who receive me, to attempt anything that would displease them. 
Ah, madam is here of her own free will, asked Matthias, to whom curiosity did not seem so strongly forbidden as was communicativeness. I request you to consider me as a voluntary captive and upon parole. Oh, it is so that I understand it. I have never guarded anyone otherwise, though indeed I have often seen my prisoners on parole weep and torment themselves as if they regretted having made the promise. And God knows they were well off here. But in those cases their parole was always returned to them when they required it. Nobody is retained here by force. Madam Supper is served. The last sentence but one of the tomato-colored Major Domo suddenly restored all her appetite to his new mistress. She found the dinner so good that she bestowed great compliments upon its author. The latter seemed much flattered at being appreciated, and Consuelo saw that she had gained his esteem. But he was neither more confiding nor more circumspect on that account. He was an excellent man, rather cowardly, at once simple and crafty. Consuelo soon knew his character, on seeing with what a mixture of good humor and address he anticipated all the questions she could make to him, in order not to be embarrassed and to arrange his answers to his liking. Thus she learned from him all that she did not ask, and yet without learning anything. His masters were persons very rich, very powerful, very generous, but very severe especially in the matter of discretion. The pavilion formed part of a beautiful residence sometimes inhabited by the masters, sometimes entrusted to the charge of very faithful, well-paid, and very discreet servants. The country was rich, fertile, and well-governed. The inhabitants did not complain of their lords. Besides, they would have found no favor in the eyes of Master Matthias, who lived in the respect of laws and persons and could not endure indiscreet words. Consuelo was so annoyed by his wise insinuations and his officious communications that she said to him, smiling, immediately after supper, I should fear being indiscreet myself, Mr. Matthias, by enjoying any longer the pleasure of your conversation. I do not require your services any further today, and I wish you good evening. Madam will do me the honor to ring for me whenever she desires anything, returned he. I live behind the house, under this rock, in a pretty hermitage where I cultivate some magnificent watermelons. I should be much gratified if Madame could favor them with a glance of encouragement but I am especially forbidden ever to open that door to madam. I understand, Master Matthias. I must never go out except to the garden, and I must not consider this a caprice of yours, but the will of my hosts. I shall conform. The more that madam would find great difficulty in opening that door. It is so heavy, and besides, there is a secret spring to the lock which might seriously wound madam's hands if she were not informed. My word is still more solid than all your locks, Mr. Matthias. Sleep in peace, as I am inclined to do on my side. Several days passed without Consuelo's receiving any sign of light from her hosts, and without her having any face before her eyes other than Matthias's mask, 
more agreeable, perhaps, than his real countenance. That worthy domestic served her with a zeal and punctuality for which she could not sufficiently thank him. But he wearied her prodigiously with his conversation, which he was obliged to endure. For he constantly and stoically refused the gifts she wished to make him, and there was no other method of testifying her gratitude but to let him talk. He passionately loved to use his tongue, which was the more remarkable because, sworn to a state of strange reserve, he never departed from it, and possessed the art of touching upon many subjects without ever hinting at those exceptions which were confided to his discretion. Consuelo learned from him exactly the quantity of asparagus and carrots which the vegetable garden of the chateau produced each year. How many fawns were born in the park? The history of each swan upon the lake, of all the pheasants in the preserve, and of all the pineapples in the hothouse. But she could not imagine for an instant in what country she was, if the master or masters of the chateau were absent or present, if she was to communicate with them some day, or to remain indefinitely alone in the pavilion. In a word, nothing that really interested her escaped from the prudent and yet always active lips of Matthias. She would have feared to be indelicate if she approached even within earshot of the gardener or of the maidservant, who, moreover, came very early and disappeared almost as soon as she rose. She limited herself to casting a glance now and then into the park, without seeing anyone pass unless too far off for observation, and to contemplating the roof of the chateau, which was illumined every evening by a few lights, always extinguished at an early hour. She soon fell into a deep melancholy, and the ennui, which she had so courageously combated at Spandau, assailed and overpowered her in that rich abode, in the midst of all the comforts of life. Are there any goods upon the earth which we can enjoy absolutely alone? Prolonged solitude darkens and disenchants the most beautiful objects. It spreads terror over the strongest minds. Consuelo soon found the hospitality of the invisibles even more cruel than strange, and a mortal disgust seized upon all her faculties. Her magnificent harpsichord seemed to give forth two piercing sounds in her empty and echoing chambers, and the accents of her own voice frightened her when she was bold enough to sing. If the first shadows of the night surprised her at this occupation, she imagined she heard the echoes reply to her in an angry tone, and thought she saw moving against the walls, covered with silk and over the noiseless carpets, uneasy and stealing shadows which, when she tried to look at them, were effaced and hid themselves behind the furniture, to gibber, laugh at, and mimic her. Still, this was only the evening breeze rushing through the foliage, which framed her windows, or the vibrations of her own song which thrilled around her. But her imagination... Tired of interrogating those mute witnesses of her ennui, the statues, the pictures, the Japan faces filled with flowers, the great clear and deep mirrors, began to be seized by a vague fear, like that produced by the expectation of some unknown event. She recalled the strange power attributed to the invisibles by the vulgar, 
the wonders with which she had been surrounded by Cagliostro, the apparition of the white woman in the palace at Berlin, the marvelous promises of the Count de Saint-Germain relative to the resurrection of Count Albert. She said to herself that all these inexplicable things probably emanated from the secret action of the invisibles in society and in her particular destiny. She did not believe in their supernatural power, but she saw clearly that they applied themselves to overcome minds by all means, addressing either the heart or the imagination by threats or promises, by terrors or temptations. She was therefore suffering under the influence of some formidable revelation or of some cruel mystification, and like cowardly children, she could have said that she was afraid of being afraid. At Spandau, she had hardened her will against extreme dangers, against real sufferings. She had triumphed over all with courage, and then resignation seemed natural to her at Spandau. The gloomy aspect of a fortress is in harmony with the sad meditations of solitude, instead of which, in her new prison, all seemed disposed for a life of poetic friendship or of peaceful intimacy. And this eternal silence, this absence of all human sympathy, destroyed its harmony like an enormous misconstruction. You would have said it was the delightful abode of two happy lovers or of a beautiful family, a charming home, suddenly disliked and deserted in consequence of some sad rupture or some sudden catastrophe. She could no longer laugh at the numerous inscriptions which decorated it and which were seen on all the ornaments as emphatic puerilities. They were encouragements united with threats, conditional eulogiums corrected by humiliating accusations. She could not raise her eyes without meeting some new sentence she had not before remarked, and which seemed to forbid her breathing at ease in this sanctuary of a distrustful and vigilant justice. Her soul had become depressed since the crisis of her escape and that of her sudden love for the unknown. The lethargic state into which he had been cast, doubtless with the design of concealing from her the situation of her asylum, had left in her a secret languor, joined to the nervous irritability which proceeds from it. She therefore felt herself in a short time become at once anxious and careless, by turns frightened by a trifle and indifferent to all. One evening she thought she heard the sounds, hardly perceptible, of a distant orchestra. She ascended the terrace and saw the chateau glittering with lights through the foliage. The music of a symphony, strong and vibrating, distinctly reached her. This contrast of effect and of her isolation agitated her more than she was willing to confess to herself. It was so long since she had exchanged a word with intelligent or reasonable beings. For the first time in her life, she imagined a wonderful delight in a night of concert or of a ball. And, like Cinderella, she wished that some good fairy would carry her through the air and make her enter the enchanted palace by a window, even were she to remain invisible, that she might enjoy the sight of a reunion of human beings animated by pleasure. The moon had not yet risen, notwithstanding the clearness of the sky. 
The shadows were so deep under the trees that Consuelo might easily glide thither unperceived, were she watched by invisible spies. A strong temptation seized upon her, and all the specious reasons which curiosity suggests when wishing to attack our conscience presented themselves in crowds to her mind. Had she been treated with confidence when brought asleep and half dead into this gilded but implacable prison? Had they the right to require of her a blind submission when they did not even deign to ask it? Besides, did they not wish to tempt an attractor by the appearance of a fete? Who could tell? All was strange in the conduct of the invisibles. Perhaps on attempting to leave the enclosure, she would in fact find a gate open, a gondola upon the stream which entered her garden and the park by an arch in the wall. She stopped at this last supposition, the most gratuitous of all, and descended to the garden, determined to try the adventure. But she had not made fifty steps before she heard in the air a sound quite similar to that which would be produced by a gigantic bird rising towards the clouds with a supernatural rapidity. At the same time, she saw about her a great light of a livid blue, which was extinguished in a few seconds and renewed almost immediately with quite a loud explosion. Consuelo then understood that it was neither lightning nor a meteor, but the commencement of fireworks at the chateau. This diversion of her host promised her a fine spectacle from the top of the terrace, and like a child who endeavors to drive away the ennui of a long trance, she hastily turned towards the pavilion. But, by the brightness of those long artificial lightnings, sometimes red and sometimes blue, which illumined the garden, she twice saw a tall man in black standing by her side. She had not time to look when the luminous shell falling in a rain of fire was rapidly extinguished and left all objects buried in a deeper darkness to the eyes an instant dazzled. Then Consuelo, terrified, ran in an opposite direction from that in which the specter had appeared to her. But on the return of the ominous brightness, again found herself two paces from him. The third time she had reached the porch of the pavilion, he was there before her, barring the way. Seized with insurmountable terror, she uttered a piercing cry and tottered. She would have fallen backwards on the step if the mysterious visitor had not seized her in his arms. But hardly had his lips breathed upon her brow than she felt and recognized the chevalier, the unknown, him whom she loved and by whom she knew herself to be loved. End of chapter 24